come now to the time of the preaching of God's Word. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 and following. Well, if you have been with us over the last six or so months, five months, you would know that we have been in a long journey through this book of Philippians, and we are now coming to a close in this book. I have not decided if I'm going to preach one last sermon uh, on this greeting and this benediction that Paul gives to us, uh, but we shall see in the coming weeks. You may also be wondering, okay, now we've finished the book of Philippians, where are we headed next? Uh, My hope in the coming weeks is to do a four-part series or so, uh, either through some psalms or through something related to worship, as we also do something in our, uh, our morning Sunday schools on the topic of worship. And I think those are things that could be helpful for us to think about. But then I plan after that to dive into the book of Judges. Uh, I have the pleasure of writing with uh, Todd Henriksen sometimes on my way to church in the morning, and we were talking about this today. And the book of Judges is one of the more challenging, difficult, vivid books in the whole Bible. And my hope is that uh, as we look around in our culture and society and we see the degeneracy, the slow or maybe rapid decay that's happening in our society, that we, would, we find ourselves in a situation that is not uncommon in Christian history, in the, people, the history of the people of God, even amongst those people who lived in Israel, the promised land, and we see what, what sad estate they came to. Uh, And so my hope is that that book can help us to navigate through the difficult waters that seem to be happening in our life and our culture and society around us. But now I'd like us to turn to the book of Philippians chapter 4, and I will begin reading in verse 10, and I will read to the end of this book. Hear now the word of the Lord. I rejoice greatly in the Lord. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To God our Father and be, to God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. 
The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word. Our Father, we come to you, those who are weak and needy people. Lord, we do not have the resources in ourselves to live the life that you have called us to live. Our ears are so often dull and hard of hearing. We listen to many things in this world that either accuse us or else turn our eyes away from you. And Lord, we ask that in this time that you would turn our eyes, our hearts heavenward to receive from you, to hear you speak to us through your word. Lord, would you change us and transform our hearts to those who love your word, who walk in obedience to you and seek to glorify you because of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ, our Savior. We ask that you would do this through your Holy Spirit. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. The question I have for you this morning is, do you have everything you need? The obvious answer to that question is no. I am sure if I sat down with you, you would probably say, well, I need X, Y, Z. I don't have everything that I need. But that's a question that sometimes we don't wrestle deeply enough with. Do I have everything that I need? There are some of us who certainly would say we have real, genuine needs. We can't meet the bank account at the end of the month. Unexpected expenses come up. Medical bills, car bills, all different kinds of things where you did not plan for, nor do you have the resources to cover them. Do you have everything that you need? This is a question that Paul himself wrestled with in this text. And I believe that the Philippians themselves were wrestling with as well. Do we have everything that we need? Paul reminds us in one of his other letters that with food and shelter we shall be content. This is everything that we need in this life. Food and shelter. How often do we actually think that for ourselves? I just need a roof over my head and some bread and water on my plate and I have everything I need. Well, I hope this morning that this text will challenge us with this question of what is it that we need in this life? What is it that we need to be, as Paul tells us here, content? Contentment is one of the most sought after things. In fact, it may be the most sought after thing in all of our lives that we seek at all times in all places to be content. We do not want to experience need. We do not want to experience want. We want to be continually satisfied in our lives. What does Paul have to say to us this morning from this book of Philippians? Well, I'd like to look at this in a couple ways. First, I'd like to see what Paul says here that, that about the secret of contentment. And secondly, I'd like to look at the fruit of contentment. Firstly, the secret of contentment, and secondly, the fruit of contentment. And then I'll end this morning with a question for us, but you will have to wait until the end of the sermon for that, so please stay awake uh, until we get to that point. So firstly, the secret of contentment. 
This section of Scripture is divided up into two parts. I believe that verse 14 actually goes with the the first paragraph, and then verse 15 marks a second paragraph. The first part is about Paul declaring his contentment. He is trying to show these Philippians that even though they sent him a gift, he is content with what he has. He is not asking them for this. He is rejoicing in it, but he is showing them, I am content with what I have. I don't need this from you. But I am rejoicing that still out of the kindness of your heart, you sent it to me. What could motivate Paul to say that I am content? Remember where Paul is. He's in prison. He likely does not have everything that he needs. He declares later that he was in affliction in the the second half of what he says here. You sent help for my needs in verse 16. Verse 14, it was kind of you to share my trouble. Paul is in need in this time. Yet he finds himself to be content here. The first thing that Paul tells us is that contentment is a secret. Contentment is a secret. What does this mean that contentment is a secret for us? Well, I think it's an irony that's being laid out here. Paul is, I think, being ironic about contentment because It's not something that can ultimately be found in the circumstances around us. We can look at our lives and think, if I have everything that I need, then I will be content. But the irony is that as you seek those things, they will not bring you ultimate, true contentment. You can have every one of your needs met, and you cannot be content. If it could be found in those things in the world around us, then it wouldn't be a secret. It would be open to everyone, and everybody would be able to access that. And that's why the entire engine of the world around us is driven to satisfy our earthly longings. Because they think that if we satisfy these earthly longings, then we will be content. It's also why Scripture warns us not to love the world. It's not that there are not real needs that we have that this world cannot meet, but that is the only focus of this world. This world cannot ultimately satisfy the deepest need, the deepest longing of the human heart. And it's from this longing that this world has that idolatry comes. They think we can be satisfied ultimately by this world, and so they create idols. Now, idols do not come into existence when we fashion them into a physical thing. That can become a form of it, but that's not where idolatry begins. Idolatry begins when we ascribe to something in this world that it has the power to truly satisfy us. It could be something as grandiose as conquering nations, becoming obscenely wealthy, having a beautiful home, having very nice clothes, or as we see in the opening of Genesis, it could be an apple or a piece of fruit. Eve saw that it was a delight to the eyes and good to make one wise. Something very simple. Ascribing to that thing the power to truly satisfy us. And it is that moment that an idol is born in our hearts. 
And there are many good natural desires that we have. We have desires for hunger, friendship, companionship, physical and emotional intimacy, other things like justice. We desire these things, and those are good desires. They are given to us by God. But when we ascribe to those things the ultimate power to satisfy us, they become an idol. Instead, there is only one thing that can truly satisfy the soul. Psalm 73, many of you know this psalm. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire. Beside you. The famous theologian of the fourth century, Augustine, echoes these words in a phrase that I'm sure many of you know Our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. See, Paul was not a hedonist. He did not believe that ultimate contentment was found in gratifying himself and fulfilling the desires that he has for his own life. He did not live for himself. But Paul was also not a Buddhist. You say, Pastor, how, where did you come out of left field with Buddhism? Well, there's something interesting here. We can think that, well, if my earthly desires are the things that are leading me astray, then I should not have them. I don't believe that's what Paul is teaching us here. That is a form of what's known as Zen Buddhism. It can be simply described as detachment. The way to avoid evil or wrong or bad things is to detach yourself from them. And that is the ultimate goal of Zen Buddhism, is to simply detach yourself from this world, to detach yourself from all desire. In fact, it goes as far as to detach yourself from yourself, that no longer do you have any desire, that you are just this free-floating amoeba in your mind, and that is when you have reached Zen, the moment of peace and tranquility. Now, I will have more to say on this concept in a moment, but Paul is not advocating a detachment from this world. We are not those who detach ourselves from the good things of this life. Paul in 1 Timothy 4 says, everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. This world is good, and it was given to us by God to fulfill our natural human desires. And so the response to when our desires for this world, when idolatry creeps up in our heart, is not to say, I shouldn't have any desire. It's putting our desires in their proper perspective, in their proper ordering. But this is the first thing that we must learn about contentment. It is a secret. It is not found in the things of this life. But how often do you and me try to find it here in this life? In the words of John Calvin, we squander our resources on every kind of luxury. We think if we have these things, then we will be content. We'll be happy. We'll be joyful. We want nicer cars, we want fancy food, we want fancy clothes, we want more comfortable homes. We think if we finally have those things that then we can be content. Life will be well and we'll be at peace. It can be in all kinds of things. It doesn't even have to be in those. 
Contentment is a secret. But the second thing about contentment is that when you have it, you can have it in any circumstance. Paul goes on to declare that I have learned the secret in whatever, I am in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul presents to us the extremes of life. That not only can, is contentment a secret, but that it can be found in the most extreme circumstances that we find ourselves in. Whether we have plenty, abundance, We have everything we need and then more. The coffers are filled with money. The houses are beautiful. The cars are plenty. Paul says, I can be content in that circumstance. I'll have more to say on this in a moment. Or I can be in the most dire situation in my life and still be content. Still find joy. The extremes, we can face hunger. It's almost offensive when Paul says this, honestly. He can face hunger and be content. Hunger is the most basic human desire that we have. There is nothing stronger than the desire for hunger. This is why Satan, when he comes to tempt Jesus, what does he try to tempt him with when he's been fasting for 40 days? Turn this stone into a piece of bread. Really? You can be content when you don't have food? This world around us would say, I think you've gone a little too far. Maybe you need to get a little food and then you can be content. But no, Paul says, I can be content even when I'm hungry, even when my stomach is grumbling, even when I'm not being fed and nourished in the way that my body needs. There we can find contentment. Remember, Paul is not a Zen Buddhist here. He is not saying, I have no desire. He acknowledges that there are times in life when he is hungry. That is a real desire, and it is a normal one. And he knows it. But it's that in the midst of that, he can still find contentment. But then Paul points out this other aspect of contentment, that he can be content when he has plenty. I know how to, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and abundance. Is Paul being an oxymoron here? Of course, we would be content when everything is going well in life. When you have abundance, when every need that you have is fulfilled, when you have more than you, have, more than you need. It's strange to our, to our ears. Content when you have plenty? What is he saying here? Well, I believe Paul is saying that he means we can have more than enough and yet still not be satisfied. We can still want more. We can have everything that we need. We can have all the wonderful things that this life has to offer, and it's still not enough for us. You know the famous words that have been repeated by many preachers, including myself, about the Financial investor who said, when is, what, how much money is enough money? And as you all know, just a little bit more. That is what Paul is referring to. 
Even when everything goes well, we can find ourselves discontent. We just want a little bit more. But it's more than this. It's more than this. Contentment is not just, I have enough. Contentment in plenty means that we are willing to give away. See, someone who is not content holds on to everything that they have and they don't give it away because they think they need this to stay happy. But a truly content person is willing to give. I don't need this. I have it, yes, but I don't actually need it. It's not a loss to give it away. In fact, they realize, as Jesus taught them, that in giving it away, there is great blessing. It is more blessed to give than receive. In giving away of ourselves, it is actually joyful. They are more content as they give away. That is the irony of true contentment. Now, Paul tells us the secret of contentment, that it is a secret not found in the things of this life, and that that contentment can be found in any circumstance that we find ourselves in. Now, there's a question that I'm sure is popping up in your mind, and we'll wait till the end to answer it. But next, Paul shows us the fruit of contentment. When we are actually content, what results? What happens here? In verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Was Paul thankful for the money that they gave? What was he thankful for? What was Paul seeking from them? Now, Paul didn't ask for this money. He was in need. He tells them, I wasn't sure. Yes, I was in need. I acknowledge that. But I am content. But I'm really glad you guys sent this money because I really needed it. Is that what Paul wants? Is that what God wants from us? See, the fruit of when we are truly content in any circumstance is not just simply that we can live despite what's happening in our lives. When we are truly content, we are liberated. We are freed to seek the good of others. Paul, in prison, in need, in affliction, is desiring these people. He wants the good of them. It was kind of you to share in my trouble. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit Paul, when he is truly content, is willing to look on others and wants the best for them. This is the opposite of what we experience when we are in discontent, when we experience need. Our eyes are turned in on ourselves, and we think of nothing but satisfying and gratifying that need. We like to throw what I grew up calling pity parties. Maybe your parents use this with you. Maybe parents, you're using those words and you're shocked to hear them come out of your mouth. But we throw pity parties because we don't get what we want. We feel bad for ourselves. And not only this, we want everyone to join in our misery. Feel bad for me because I don't have what I want. I'm reminded of the good comic Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin, when his friend Susie arrives at the bus stop 
and responds to only have and finds Calvin in a sour mood. And she says, what's, on, what's wrong with you, Calvin? And Calvin gives her a big humph and complains to her about her sour mood. Then what happens to Susie in this episode? Well, she gets put into a sour mood as well. She complains, or he complains of his sour mood, then she becomes sour herself. And then she sits there and goes, humph. And what does Calvin say at the end of that? Nothing helps a bad mood like spreading it. Right? This is how we are. Our eyes are turned in on ourselves and we want to spread our misery. If I can't be content, nobody around me can be content. But when we're content, when we are full, when we are satisfied, we can actually look out upon others and spread goodness and see goodness and look for goodness in them. And Paul set himself out in a few verses before this to as himself as an example to follow. My words, my thoughts, my deeds. And to look to him as one who demonstrates this. And here he is doing it. He is demonstrating to us what this looks like. Instead of seeking simply to satisfy his own needs and desires and wants, which nobody would have faulted Paul for, he rests content. And he looks out for the good of others. And this is the freedom that contentment gives us. It gives us the freedom that we don't need to use other people to get the things that we want. Because we're content. Even if I don't have the things that I want, even if I don't have the things that I need, I'm still content. Paul wanted to make clear to these people that he wasn't merely thankful for their money. He was thankful for them. I thank you Or it was kind of you to share. It was kind of you. Thanks for the money. Have a nice day. It's not what Paul does. He was thankful for what had come from them. Their kindness. But the fruit of contentment is not just that we're freed and liberated to seek the good of others. It's that we actually rejoice in the good of others. It's not just that we become willing to serve and see good come from them. We actually, when we see it, we rejoice. We give thanks for it. See, Christians are ultimately not pessimists. I know to some of you this may be devastating news, but we are not ultimately pessimists. Now, don't misunderstand me. There are sometimes things that we declare as Christians and point out that to others may look like pessimism. We can see and acknowledge that the world, other people, and ourselves for who they really are. And as good Calvinists, we know that we are totally depraved. And the world may look at us and say, you are just a bunch of pessimists. Don't you know how good mankind can be? And we say, no, we're actually quite evil. And so sometimes the things that we believe can look like pessimism, but that does not mean that it is truly pessimism where we just look at the worst, the state of everything, the worst situation. But ultimately, as Christians, we are those who look for the good 
And not only when we see the good, we actually praise it. And Paul does this over and over in his letters. Every letter begins, except for the book of Galatians, and there's reasons for why that is, with praising the believers. I thank you. I pray for you. I rejoice. Notice how many times this word rejoice has come up in here. I rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. Verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. The fruit of contentment is that we are freed to serve and we're freed to rejoice. We're freed that, to do and see things that we would not otherwise see if all we were focused upon is our need. Now there's a question that I believe several, if not many of you, are asking. Nate, this is a great sermon on contentment. Or maybe it's a mediocre sermon. You can tell me later. Contentment is a secret. Contentment can be found in any circumstance. Contentment frees us to serve others and rejoice. But how do I have it? How do I have contentment? I see the need for this. How do I have contentment in any circumstance that I'm in? Because I'm sure for many of you, you're in circumstances where contentment is hard to come by. How do we have it? Well, I see in two phrases that Paul gives us, two of some of the most famous verses that I'm sure many of you have memorized yourself, what Paul tells us of how to find contentment. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. How do you have contentment? Well, you have it in Jesus. You have contentment in Christ. You have it as Jesus gives it to you, as he strengthens you. See, Jesus gives us something that the world cannot give. But Jesus also gives us something that the world cannot take. And what does Jesus give us? What is the strength that he gives us? It's himself. It is himself. Jesus has given you himself. That is the amazing thing about Jesus. See, we are all people who have sought to find contentment in a million other things besides God. As we confess today that we are people who violate the 10th commandment. We are covetousness. We want other people. We want other people's things. And we do this every day. As our catechism says later, we do this daily. We break God's commands in thought, word, and deed. So Jesus gives us himself. He gives himself to sinners like us who do not deserve it. And that is the strength that you need. It's grace. You need grace to face every circumstance in your life. You need to know that despite everything that's going on around you, despite everything that you have done or will do, Jesus will be with you. 
He will never leave you and never forsake you. You need to know that Jesus Christ is gracious towards you. He's gracious towards sinners who have loved themselves more than anything. And instead of giving us what we deserve for our covetousness, our lack of contentment in God, as the psalmist had said, that he wanted to know and see God alone, instead of giving us what we deserve, wrath, judgment, and punishment, Jesus was kind to us. And he had mercy on us. He had mercy on those who did not deserve it. In fact, those who undeserved it. And he took all of that on himself and did away with it. Everything that would make us unacceptable, unworthy of having every blessing that God can pour out on a person. And Jesus died on that cross, putting those things away, and was raised from the dead so that he could give to you this thing that nobody can take away and nobody else can give you. Eternal life. See, as a Christian, you can be content in every circumstance in your life because you have eternal life in Jesus. You're going to live forever. In fact, in the book of John, he reminds us on the words of Jesus that eternal life begins now. If you believe in the Son of God, you have eternal life. You have it in possession right now because you have Jesus himself. And that is what Jesus gives you today. He gives you himself freely to make you content in any circumstance that you find yourself in. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches of glory in Christ Jesus. If you do not have Christ Jesus, you cannot have the riches of this glory. But if you have Christ Jesus, you have the riches of this glory. Now, they may be manifested in this life in a small way. We may see in a mirror dimly, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians. But one day, one day we will see face to face in bright, brilliant glory. And so today, Christian, receive him. Receive Christ as your only contentment in life and in death. Receive him as the one with whom you are satisfied and satisfied alone. And if you are here today and you do not know Christ, believe in Jesus Christ. Believe that what he has done on the cross, by taking not only away your discontentment, your covetousness, but all of the other ways that you have turned away from the Lord and gone your own way, and turned to him and believe that he is the one who gives you eternal life. And you will begin to find contentment no matter what circumstance you are in in this life. So turn to Christ. Rest in him. Our souls are restless until they rest in you. Let us pray. Father in heaven, 
Lord, we ask that you would help us to find our rest and contentment in Jesus Christ. Lord, lift our hearts to see the goodness that you have poured out on us in Christ. And help us to always remember that we have eternal life. And because of that, we can give ourselves away no matter what circumstance we are in. And Lord, help us to turn our eyes away from the things of this world and to find our joy and hope in you. Lord, help us with the hymn writer declare that it is well with our souls, no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, because Lord, you are with us. You are with us strengthening, sustaining, providing, and enriching us. Let us look to you alone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.